0: Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. This week we discuss important macroeconomic indicators and what they tell us about the state of the
1: economy. I want to understand which of these indicators deserves our attention and whether they can tip us off as to where markets are heading. And then later we ask the dumb question of the week. Does global equity always rise in the long term? Okay, let's get into it. So the economy is a confusing beast. There are lots of numbers which people pick out, some more meaningful than others. And for an amateur, you don't really know which are the important things to look at. Now, there are lots of things called macroeconomic indicators, which indicate the health of certain bits of the economy and what's going up and what's going down. Now, Robin is going to use all his expertise to talk us through which of these matter. So, Robin, if you have a crystal ball, now is the time to tell us.
0: <laughs> if only. The reason why I think these are useful, these indicators, is because they give you a broad overview of what's going on. If you just go by headlines in newspapers or what you see on TV, it'll be very misleading and it'll be usually flavoured with some kind of opinion.
1: Well, I used to work at a newspaper for a long time, and it only really got into the papers when there was a big crash going on. So if you only read the papers, you'd think the stock market's always a disaster.
0: And what do people look for? They look for emotion, they look for things which essentially compel them to look at more headlines. That's what gets clicks on a website. And so this gives you a kind of more objective view of what's going on in markets. And I think a really nice analogy is with aeroplanes and flying an aeroplane when you're in cloud or it's dark and you have to somehow use the instruments to fly the aeroplane it's called instrument flight rules and the idea is that you can fly the aeroplane without any kind of cues from outside when you're under these kind of very stressful circumstances where you can't see a thing out of the window and similarly
1: aeroplanes only make the news when they crash (laughs) that's right I mean, it's not,
0: not a good thing, right? But I think the thing about making it objective is that it takes some of the emotion out of investing, which is what we're always trying to do. So the reason why some of these are more useful than others is that many of them tell you about the economy, but they don't necessarily tell you anything about the stock market or the bond market, say. So I think it's really important to make that discrimination. The economy is not the same thing as the stock market. That's really clear. However, In extreme cases, the economy does affect the stock market. And that's why the two are kind of tied, but it's not really a very clear linkage. But under extremes, then you better be sure you understand
1: what's going on in the economy. And as I understand it, there are different kinds of indicators. There are what's called leading indicators, which tell us what might be happening. They kind of give us a flavour of what's coming down the track. And then there are lagging indicators, which tell us what has happened. And
0: coincident ones, which tell you what's going on right now. Each of them has its own part to play. When you think about leading indicators, they aren't perfect indicators. Some are better than others. But the idea is that they lead things like GDP or they lead inflation. If you're looking for a leading indicator for the stock market, good luck, because <laughs> there aren't any. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I mean, if we knew what was going to happen, it would be much less interesting to invest, I think. But let's let's think about what's going on with the leading indicators and take an example, right? So one of the ones which people use a lot is something called building permits. So the idea here is that if you're going to build some houses, if you're a property developer, then you apply for building permits. And of course, you'll only do that if you think people will want to buy those houses. So when these companies do apply for those permits, it's a sign that they expect to pick up in the housing market, or at least strong demand for housing. Whereas if they're going to a recession, it's much less likely that they'll be doing that. So this is one indicator of future demand for housing, which in turn is a read on the economy because if people feel more confident they're more likely to buy houses for
1: example. And I suppose it's the biggest asset that most people will ever own is a house.
0: Yeah and that's just one example right so another one might be average weekly hours in manufacturing so the idea there is that if you've got production workers in manufacturing then employers are going to adjust the work hours if they think that demand's about to pick up they'll increase the hours if they think it's about to slow down they'll reduce hours. So keeping a handle on that gives you a kind of insight into the pulse of what's going on in manufacturing so there's a whole battery of these leading indicators coincident indicators so coincident would be something like non-farm payrolls i'm always going on about non-farm payrolls yeah those poor farmers they
1: don't get counted (laughs)
0: it's kind of like um, it focuses on particular sectors like the manufacture of goods the construction
1: industry and unfortunately as you say agricultural workers are excluded from it so maybe let's drill into that so that's an indicator of the labor market and there are lots of different numbers which get thrown around like the unemployment rate and i know in america everyone focuses on the initial jobless claims do you want to explain the difference between these indicators
0: well i think the one which people use focus on, the coincident one, is, is non-farm payrolls, because what that tells you roughly is how many jobs have been added to the US economy over the last month. Now, just to absorb the new entrants into the workplace, you'd have about 100,000 new jobs added. So if you're above that, then you'd expect
1: unemployment to fall. And when you say new entrants into the workforce, do you mean people graduating from college? Exactly, yeah.
0: These are people who've just entered the workforce, either from leaving school or university. And you have to absorb those new entrants. If you can't, then that's a real problem. And that's published on the first Friday of the month. And everybody looks at it. I remember when I first went for a job interview in strategy at an investment bank, the guy kept me waiting because he was waiting for the non-farm payrolls. Oh, really? I was just waiting at the door while he was sat in front of the Bloomberg terminal. And then he kind of nodded sagely as he saw the number (laughs) pop up. And I thought, oh my God, what is this? (laughs) I mean, I knew what non-farm payrolls was, but it really is an important number because the US workforce and the US employment market is probably the most important one in the world because that drives Federal Reserve policy and that in turn sets the risk-free rate for essentially every asset on the planet. So that's why I think it's important to understand how all these things fit together.
1: And also US consumers are so important, aren't they, in driving global demand?
0: Yeah, and US wealth. You know, they're probably the richest country in the world. So US dollars sloshing around the world is essentially what drives markets to first order. So that's why I think it's important to monitor some of these indicators indicators
1: so that non-farm payrolls indicator what's that looking
0: like at the moment i mean it's it's really difficult now because if you plot it what people usually look at is the change the monthly change in employment so you know if it's been very strong which it has been recently over two hundred thousand, then that's because we've got a very strong recovery and that's exactly what we've seen everyone's complaining about inflation and the Fed missing, you know, taking its eye off the ball with inflation. But the reason why the Fed was so accommodative was because we had a catastrophe in the US jobs market and in job markets across the world. So they were trying to ensure that those people were getting back to work.
1: And they do have a dual mandate, the Fed, don't they? It's not just inflation they look at.
0: Yeah, it's full employment as well. And people forget that because, you know, it's kind of touchy-feely. It's about people's lives. But the Fed really cares about it. I'm always criticised of being an apologist for the Fed, but they actually care about it. You know, they want to ensure that people do have jobs.
1: And I remember during the start of the pandemic, everyone was saying the danger is not doing too much. The danger is doing too little, which would cause scarring in the economy. And we seem to have hopefully avoided the worst of the scarring in the labour market, at least.
0: Yeah. And we've had a very rapid recovery, exactly the opposite of what happened in 2008, 2009. Do you think the lessons were learned from 2008? Very clearly. You know, I think that was what went through policymakers' minds. You know, they looked back and saw it took seven years for the job market to recover from the global financial crisis. So this time around, they were really active in trying to fix that maybe too active. So, you know, we have had inflation spike, but it was probably not due to what people say it was, which is money printing.
1: Oh, someone is an apologist for the Fed. <laughs> <laughs> I love Jerome Powell. Yeah. <laughs> So similar to non-farm payrolls, another indicator in the labour market is the initial jobless claims. And as I understand it, this is kind of people who are filing for state benefits in the US. It was
0: kind of odd when everything was really kicking off with the pandemic in the US, in terms of the jobs market at least. We saw a huge spike in the initial claims number. So these are people who are claiming unemployment insurance. And that happens immediately after they lose their job. So that's a really timely indicator. It comes out every week. Non-farm payrolls comes out every month, so we had a couple of weeks of data from that before we saw non-farm payrolls go completely crazy. So it's kind of a
1: sequence, isn't it? This is probably the first canary in the coal mine.
0: Yeah, and that's why it's very frequently watched. So that's another way to look at indicators is how frequently are they updated? Something like GDP, gross domestic product, which is effectively how much increase you get in the goods and services produced by a whole country over some period of time. So GDP is a lagging indicator. By the time you see GDP, it's all over, right? It's all backward looking. Yeah. I always joke that uh, economics is a supposed science
1: which actually can't forecast the past. because <laughs> <laughs> they're, always, they're always revising GDP. I mean, it's really hard to measure GDP nowadays. So It's not just like agriculture and manufacturing, is it? It's all these sort of intangible assets. and Yeah, things like, uh, you know,
0: tech companies which don't produce anything which is visible or which you could ever even really understand in some cases. I mean, how do you measure you? YouTube is, is free. Ah, oh, but it generates an income as I know Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the thing about The frequency of these indicators is that now I think what we're seeing is a move away from traditional measures, which do update infrequently, but which are very wide-ranging in terms of the data they collect. We're moving much more towards almost real-time data. So, for example, the ONS, the Office for National Statistics in the UK, during the pandemic, they were publishing things like, you know, how much footfall there was in shops Literally, they could see on video cameras how many people were walking into the shops and they could monitor that in almost real time or how many people were booking restaurant tables.
1: And how many people were going on the tube?
0: How many people on the tube? Or, you know, you can actually monitor traffic on roads. And it was amazing seeing the drop in that, but also the recovery. So so you could in real time monitor the activity of what's going on. But I think that's one of the trends is that we're moving away from these traditional measures, which are published infrequently, to kind of real time measures of activity. And in the future, probably GDP will be much more
1: timely. And so to go back to those labour market indicators, what do they tell us really about the economy and then for what might happen in markets?
0: I used to like um, talking to The economists when I worked at an investment bank and... They're obviously incredibly bright and they understand real nitty-gritty facts about the economy and how it works. But I always liked it when they came up with a homespun truth, you know, like there's no way we're going to get a recession if unemployment is below 3%, you know, or, so, or some kind of truism
1: right, like Right, they that. just make up some rule.
0: Well, no, no, they were saying that, you know, if employment is high, unemployment is low, then it's very unlikely you're going to get a recession. It's going to be good for the economy because if you're employed, you've got a salary, you can go out and spend. That'll feed through to corporate earnings, and that'll be good for the equity market. So, you know, very simple understanding. But very key understanding of that statistic comes from that kind of truism.
1: But people are talking about the fact we may get a recession and unemployment is very low. So those things aren't going together, right?
0: Well, I think they kind of do because it's very unlikely that you're going to get a deep, deep recession if employment numbers hold up. But of course, the trouble with unemployment is that it's a lagging indicator. You only find out about what's going on in the employment market after the kind of structural changes, if you like, have already happened. It doesn't really tell you what's going on immediately. So I think unemployment is important, but it is backward looking. So that's why, you know, I focus on other things like non-farm payrolls, which at least is coincident.
1: But those are all looking relatively strong at the moment.
0: Yeah, at the moment, certainly it's looking pretty good in terms of of employment. And, you know, we're at very low unemployment levels, historic lows, you know, the kind of unemployment levels that we had decades ago, 50 years ago, is, is what we're talking about. And I think people also tend to focus on indicators which confirm their own biases. So if someone wants to tell a bad story, they'll focus on just one indicator, like yield curve inversion, which we'll come on to, I suspect. But the reason why I think using the analogy of the instruments in a a cockpit is pilots are trained not to focus on one instrument. They have this kind of scanning approach where they look at each of the instruments in turn so that they immediately pick up a kind of gestalt picture of what's going on. And they don't focus on just the altimeter, say, or the airspeed indicator. They have an overall picture of what's going on. And I think similarly, you should kind of flip between these different
1: indicators. I've often wondered if that unemployment figure is disguising people who have dropped out of the workforce, but are not actively looking for jobs. Because as I understand it, unemployment is just the people who are looking but can't find work.
0: So another indicator people look at is called the U6 indicator, which also includes people who are discouraged workers. So these are people who've effectively left the workforce because they couldn't find a job for a long period of time. I was a discouraged worker even when I was in the workforce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perhaps it's a bad term from that point of view. But I, th- I think people, you know, at the Fed, for example, they certainly look at indicators like that. Yellen often used to talk about U6, Powell does as well. But there are different indicators which give you different measures of the same thing.
1: And so, moving on from the labor market, the other main strand here is what's going on in business. And I think the credit market is often talked about as one which is a very timely indicator of business viability.
0: Yeah, I I think the credit market's an important one. So, this is kind of informally called the SLUSE survey, the Senior Loan Officers Survey. And you look at the percentage of banks which are tightening conditions for loans or loosening conditions for loans. It sounds a little bit abstruse, but in fact, it makes a lot of sense because if you're a bank manager and you think, economic conditions are going to get worse you'll be less likely to lend so you'll tighten up on the lending conditions and make it more difficult for companies to get loans. And this availability of credit is effectively what lets a company grow.
1: And it kind of determines which companies are viable. If it's tightening, then the more speculative ones are not going to do so well.
0: Yeah, so that's why a lot of focus goes into the small company lending. So you look at tightening and loosening conditions to small companies. And you can find a lot of this data free in the United States on FRED which is a St. Louis Fed economic database, which is just incredibly good.
1: It's a nerd's paradise. I love that site. I absolutely love it. And, you
0: know, you look at the Bank of England and you have to find breakeven inflation, and it takes about 10 minutes to dig through the website, download the spreadsheet. You've got to ring up Andrew Bailey
1: and say, what's the address again? You have to wake him up, yeah. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Oh yeah, did you see that news story? (laughs) when he was at the fca and he was supposedly (laughs) fell asleep in meetings
0: so this was a critical meeting about mis-selling of pensions and the guy was nodding off
1: it is boring though Roman. it's boring (laughs) stuff
0: (laughs) oh it's unbelievable anyway so you have to dig through the website and then the dates come out formatted incorrectly so it's difficult to turn them into proper dates and you have to dig into a zipped file it's just a nightmare whereas with fred you just search for senior loan officers. You click on it. It's got the entire history as a graph. It usually goes back to like the
1: 70s or something. You can sort of yeah. zoom right in. You can zoom in. You can, you can actually add other graphs onto the same axis. So if people say, why are we focusing so much on the US? Just because the data's is so good and it's so important.
0: Yeah. Fred just makes everything a joy. You know, I mean, if you want to understand economics, Fred is a great place to start. You got an affiliate link or something? <laughs> <laughs> if only. <Yeah. laughs> In the US, the corporate bond market is much more important than it is in Europe. In Europe, they tend to be much more dependent on bank loans for companies. In the US, the corporate bond market has traditionally been much bigger. So another way of monitoring what's going on with lending to companies is to look at corporate bond yields and how much additional yield you get when you lend money to a company versus the US government. That's called the credit spread. And when that blows out, then it becomes more expensive for companies to borrow, and that often goes hand in hand with some kind of shakeout in the equity market. Because if you look at the average credit rating for the S&P, for example, it's sub-investment grade. It's
1: junk. That's so strange, though, isn't it? Because those companies don't tend to go bankrupt very often.
0: No, and at the moment, the bankruptcy rates are very low. You know, very low indeed. But when there is a shakeout, that's when the small
1: caps really suffer. I think there's only two companies in America with AAA credit rating these days.
0: Is it Microsoft and Johnson & Johnson?
1: I think so. But it used to be many more. So what I'm taking is the Senior Loan Officer Survey and the Corporate Bond Market are both ways of measuring how easily companies can borrow and how expensive it is for them to do so.
0: And both of those, I think, are important for the equity market because if credit is easily available, then companies can expand. And also it tells you about fear in the market. It's a very timely measure of fear in the market.
1: So it means that companies can expand. But what do we look at to see if companies... Are actually expanding, whether they've got more orders, more business coming through the door.
0: I'm glad you asked that, Michael, (laughs) (laughs) because there we'd go for the purchasing managers indices, so the PMI indices. I once met this friend of mine who's actually a Danish fund manager. And we went for a very nice meal out in Denmark, and he was telling me about the financial crisis and how he called the turnaround, which was roughly March in 2009, when the market bottomed out. The S and P bottomed at 666. That was the uh,
1: yeah, <laughs> that was a low point. We do live in a simulation. I will live and die by that.
0: <laughs> but he didn't go by the number 666. He said what he looked at was the PMI indices that told him when markets turned around. So what are these things? Well, the idea behind a PMI index is that you send out a survey to companies to essentially ask how's business going, and you create something called a diffusion index. So if it's below 50, that signals a contraction or deterioration in conditions. If it's above 50, it signals an improvement in conditions, and it's usually broken down into subcomponents. So usually there's a services index for each country, and there's a manufacturing index. And of course, for developed markets, service industries are much more important. They make up about 80% of the economy in the US and the UK.
1: Yeah, it's massive, isn't it?
0: So the service component of the PMI index is the one everyone looks at.
1: We're really reliant on those companies to fill out those surveys accurately then.
0: Well, if they didn't, it wouldn't be such a good indicator. I mean, that's clear. But what's good about one company doing that survey is that it is consistent across the world. And there's a company called Market, M-A-R-K-I-T, confusingly, which does most of the PMI indices globally now. And
1: it's a bottom-up kind of indicator, isn't it? It's based on all these different individual businesses saying how their business is going.
0: Which would be impossible for us to do, right? For each individual investor, you wouldn't be able to phone up like a thousand companies and say how's business so this effectively gives you that insight and in a timely way because it's published every month and a lot of people look at PMI and disease so you know this is another one of the indicators which professional investors kind of obsess over you know like payrolls because it's so important And it's turnarounds that this thing signals. So, you know, when it's just bobbing along at 50 or 55 or 45, it wouldn't be particularly interesting. But when you have had a big shakeout and, you know, markets have crashed or there's a distressed global economy, you watch the PMI indices for a turnaround because that'll give you a fairly timely indicator when businesses suddenly say, oh, yeah, we're starting to see orders picking up now.
1: What I wonder is all these indicators are publicly available. So how useful is that information really? It can't give you an edge over anyone else in the market.
0: Well, I think what it does give you is, like I said, an in- objective way of looking at what's going on. You know, in 2009, I still remember sitting in a Marriott hotel in New York. We're really globe-trotting on the podcast today. Denmark, New York. Well, the life of a strategist, Michael. Now we're just sitting in this <laughs> office with Teddy. Very different. But I remember sitting in that hotel, reading the Wall Street Journal, and effectively the Wall Street Journal was saying, this is the end. It looks like there may be a systemic failure in the banking system. But if you look to the PMI, that's exactly the point at which things were turning around. That's why I think it's important to have this kind of measure, because it just reminds you that the narrative you hear via media is often misleading, and it often makes you invest badly. Now, there are lots of other sources of information, which aren't strictly speaking indicators, but which you can pick up from reports which are published, which are free. Now, a great one is published by the Fed, where they give an outline of what's going on in the economy in the US, but also globally. When you read the report, they talk about the staff overview of the economy. And the Fed has an incredibly talented group of economists which produces reports which are beautifully and clearly written. So I always recommend to people that they print out that report from the Fed and they stick it in the toilet because, you know, you can just dip into it and then, you know, you don't have to read the whole thing <laughs> in one go. I
1: thought you meant it's just junk, just throw it in the toilet, <laughs> symbolically. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I just mean it's kind of like periodic reading so that, you know, you don't sit down and read it from cover to cover, but you kind of just dip in and just read about what's going on. And it gives a global overview. It's not just the US economy they talk about. They talk about markets, they talk about the economy, employment, all of the things which affect Federal Reserve policy.
1: It's kind of a qualitative way of looking at the world.
0: Yeah, and again it gives you that background, it gives you that overview.
1: No, I, I was just going to say I like these kind of more qualitative indicators. I saw someone online say that the best indicator of when you should really buy stocks is when Robin's thumbnails on YouTube. YouTube look a bit depressing.
0: I said, that's a sign. I I obviously spoke to lots of professional investors over the years. And I remember we had these kind of swanky offices at the bank I was working at. And he was just looking out of the window and he says, do you want to know what indicator I use? I count cranes on the horizon. So he saw lots of construction cranes in London. That's
1: something that a TV drama writer wrote. (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, it's actually true. And he said whenever he saw lots of cranes, he thought there was too much construction, and then he'd, you know, not get exposed to commercial property because it was being oversupplied. Which I thought was a great story. But but I think there are lots of kind of informal indicators which people use. Another good one, actually, if you want a report which is free, which gives you a great overview, is to look at the kind of worry-fest documents. Imagine it's kind of like a horror story for a central bank. And these are called the financial stability reports. There's one from the Fed. There's one from the Bank of England. And essentially what they're monitoring is all the things that could go wrong. They'll look at the housing market, they'll look at leverage in households, they'll look at leverage for companies, and they'll look for people taking out too much leverage in the equity market, broker leverage. All of these indicators are things they'd look at, or hedge fund leverage. And every time there's a crisis, they add a new indicator onto the panel. So people say they're always preventing the previous crisis. Yeah. But eventually things do repeat. Another good source of a financial stability report is produced by the IMF. So this is really lengthy document. And again, it's another worry-fest document where they go through every possible crisis that could
1: occur based on various data. Another one for the toilet? Definitely. And to all, reading all these reports, does it not just turn you into a kind of perma-bear, just thinking, oh, all these things can go wrong?
0: Well, it's good to be prepared mentally, I think, for this kind of thing. I mean, most of these things don't happen, right? It
1: only takes one, though, and then I'm down 50%. (laughs)
0: And it could make you too cautious. You're right. I think, you know, don't dwell on the financial stability reports, but just be aware of what the regulators are looking at, because I think that gives you a broader set of indicators. You know, they have access to data, which we don't have. So what are they saying at the moment? So clearly at the moment, it's very much focused on the COVID-19 crisis and all of the repercussions following it and talking about repricing risk, you know, tighter financial conditions created by the pandemic. By tighter financial conditions, of course, they're talking about credit availability. So even if the Fed does absolutely nothing and doesn't raise interest rates and credit spreads widen, then financial conditions effectively have got tighter.
1: They're doing the job of the Fed for them. Yeah, fear is doing the Fed's job. And talking about the Fed and raising interest rates, which they've now started to do, a lot of people are looking at the yield curve, which is probably the most notorious indicator out there. Because yield curve inversions usually come before a recession in the US. So we talk about what a yield curve inversion is. So what I understand the yield curve to be is the US government is borrowing money. Could be for one year, could be for 10 years, could be for 30 years. And usually it costs significantly more money to borrow for a longer period of time. So they'll be paying a higher interest rate for 30 years than they will for one year. And an inversion flips that on its head and they have to pay more to borrow over the short term than the long term. Yeah, that's exactly right. And usually it's upward
0: sloping because if you're buying a 20-year US government bond, then you're taking a lot more risk. Just plot the price of a 20-year bond versus a one-year bond and you'll see what I mean. The 20-year bond will be all over the place like equity, whereas the 1-year bond will be almost like cash, almost zero volatility, almost zero price movement. So in order to be willing to take that volatility, you have to be paid a higher rate of income, a higher yield. That's why people usually demand some kind of term premium, it's called. So one way to think of it is the long end of the curve is driven by growth expectations. So let's say that we're coming out of a period of crisis. Usually the Fed will have reduced interest rates to zero. They control the short end of the curve. So the curve will actually be very steep at that point. And then as the Fed raises interest rates, the short end will be moving up people will still be fairly pessimistic about the growth prospects. And if the Fed hikes too fast and too hard, then the short end of the curve can move up above the long end. And that can actually kill off a a recovery. That certainly has happened in the past. But of course, the Fed is very sensitive to that possibility.
1: Are some parts of the curve not inverting now or very close to inverting? Yeah, parts of the curve have already inverted. And in fact, I
0: made a video about that because I think it's important for people to understand what it means.
1: And what does it mean?
0: I think one of the things is some people take this to be causal, right? They think that yield curve inversion causes the recession, whereas in fact it's just a symptom. You know, tighter financial conditions and mediocre growth are just not a good combination but usually you come out of these crises with a recession at the end of it so you know that's the that's the problem thing is that fred
1: kind of has to raise rates now inflation is running at what 8% 8% or something. It can't sit there with rates at zero.
0: Yeah. And, and and kind of expanding its balance sheet so rapidly, clearly, everyone's thinking that economic conditions should be much tighter than they are now, which is quite reasonable because, you know, if you look at the Taylor Rule, for example, it's saying that Fed policy rate should be something like 6% right now, which would
1: be unthinkable given what's happened in the past decade or so. What would happen if they just did that though? If they just said, screw it, it's going up to 6%, we'll shake it all out and we'll deal with it. What would actually happen? We would just see meltdown. Well, a couple of things would happen.
0: <laughs> you know, I, well, one of the things is that a lot of interest rates are based on the Fed policy rate. For example, floating rate loans would immediately become much more expensive to service and borrowing in the credit markets would become much more expensive. So that means that large proportions of companies could no longer operate. These are effectively zombie companies which are kept alive by rolling over their debt. So those companies would probably go to the wall. Killing off zombie companies sounds fun, though. It sounds like a good thing to do. But remember that a lot of these zombies are the companies where, if they do make it, these are the big growth companies. That's the hope, anyway.
1: Zombies, the wrong term, then. They should be called, like, sleeping beauty companies or something.
0: Well, some of them are zombies. You know, they're just not going to make it. Right. (laughs) And the majority are companies like that, but some of them are the kind of diamonds in the rough where, yeah, they're going to make it and become the new Apple of the future.
1: So if rates went up too quickly, you'd kill off some companies and presumably the housing market would take a big hit because mortgage rates are going to go up.
0: And in a developed markets, a lot of household wealth is in housing, about half of it in the UK. I think it's comparable in the US. So obviously that would have a huge psychological impact on people. And some people think that when the house prices fall, that stops people consuming. It's called the wealth effect. So that could have an effect on growth as well. So, you know, if if the Fed did go kind of a little bit off the rails and say, hey, we're going to put it up to 6%, you wanted it, so there you are. (laughs) (laughs) I, I suspect
1: it would crash the economy big time.
0: Only one way to find out. Oh dear, no. And that's why we're not head of policy at any of these central banks, Michael. Not yet. No.
1: And you mentioned with central banks, the size of their balance sheet is another thing to look at.
0: And Why is that? Well, I mean, if you look at the size of the Fed's balance sheet relative to GDP and plot the S&P over the last decade or so, there's a very strong relationship between the two. So some people say this is an indicator you should look at. But of course, if you look before that the S&P's been going up for 120 years without balance sheet necessarily increasing massively
1: and causing the rally. And what we effectively mean here is the Fed is printing money to buy US government debt, mortgage-backed securities and some company debt as well, even junk bonds now.
0: Well, there were some junk bonds. I don't think they're buying those anymore. But but they did buy junk bond ETFs like JNK and HYG for a short period of time when the credit market seized up in March 2020. Look at the Japanese central bank, they ended up owning a huge proportion of the equity ETFs for the Japanese equity market. So they've gone way past where the Fed has in terms of debt to GDP.
1: They're over 200%. They're kind of the buyer of last resort for every asset, including equity. Could we see that in the West? Could the Fed buy equity at some point in a future crisis if it's out of all other tools? Yeah, these kind of aspects of unconventional monetary policy, there's no kind of
0: theory behind them. Really, it's just about restoring confidence and it's about shock and awe. You know, if you can shock the market into being confident, that's great. That's the goal. Really, it's when markets are in free fall that you really need that kind of shock and awe. But of course, every time you do it, it becomes less shocking and less awful. (laughs) Awesome is the word I was yeah. probably looking for. <laughs> Maybe it
1: was awful. But can the Fed ever really reduce the size of its balance sheet significantly? Well, the way
0: they're going to do it is very carefully, because what they can't do is dump $7 trillion worth of treasuries onto the treasury market overnight.
1: It's another one of the things we should just try and see what happens. <laughs> oh, God, <no.
0: laughs> because there, you know, you really would crash the market. So the good thing about bonds is is they have a maturity date. So you can just wait until the bonds mature and gradually roll the balance sheet down to normal size. But you know if you have an average maturity of seven years on the balance sheet, it's going to take more than seven years for the balance sheet to shrink significantly.
1: Does that mean the price of borrowing for the U.S. government will go much higher because you haven't got this massive buyer in the Fed?
0: Well, that's what some people are saying. That you know if the Fed's been buying all these treasuries, who's going to buy them? But that ignores the fact that. But there are many structural buyers of treasuries. Companies like insurance
1: companies, pension funds are usually forced to buy certain types of debt. So slowly, slowly does it and they might be able to bring it down a bit over time, their balance sheet.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's what's going to happen. That's what they did uh, last time they shrank the balance sheet. So just before this pandemic kicked off. That's what they were doing.
1: But then they'll just start to be slowly reducing again and then some other crisis will hit and the balance sheet will get blown out again. And we'll just keep taking this sort of stairway upwards, no?
0: Well, even if we do, the question is, is that sustainable or are we just going to have to live with a new normal where central banks have big balance sheets? But in terms of immediate problems that that causes, I don't think there are necessarily huge problems with that. Some people say that this distorts markets. So if there's a huge price insensitive buyer like the Fed, then you're not finding a price. This is not a free market economy. This is a rigged economy and a rigged market, which is to some extent true. But I think it ignores the fact that every day the treasury market in the US trades about half a trillion of US treasuries. And the Fed is a f- relatively small part of that. Okay, in terms of the outstanding treasuries which they hold, I think it's around a fifth of the market from memory, I can't remember the exact number, so it is a sizable proportion. But in terms of the daily volume, you know, they're a fairly significant player, but not, I don't think, distorting markets to that extent.
1: Okay, and so to wrap it up, Romin, if you imagine someone came to your Bloomberg terminal with a baseball band, smashed it, and you could only save three of these indicators we've talked about, which three would you choose?
0: I'd save the Bloomberg terminal.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: I'd probably go for... Non-farm payrolls, because I think that's a good timely one. The credit one I think I'd probably use would be the the tightening and the loosening of credit conditions in the sluice survey. That's a definitely useful indicator. And I think the other one, which is really important, is CPI. Because clearly, you know, the current crisis that we're seeing, uh, consumer price inflation is probably another big driver of policy, but also margins for companies. So those are probably the three I'd use. Or should I have gone for PMI? Now I'm thinking maybe. <laughs> is this like Desert Island Disc? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>, exactly.
1: <laughs> maybe you should get CPI thrown in, like you get the Bible or whatever <laughs> on Desert Island Disc. <laughs>
0: We often discuss these economic indicators just after they've been published in our Slack forum in PensionCraft. So if you want to join the discussion and learn more,
1: just go to PensionCraft.com. So each episode we tackle a dumb question of the week, and this week's has been submitted by Joe. If you'd like to ask a question, you can email us at mhr@PensionCraft.com. So Joe asks... Why does global equity only trend upwards over the long term? And then he clarifies further by saying, is long-term earnings growth basically a function of human progress and technological innovation, or is it something to do with the supply of money or something else? And is this upward trend fundamental and intrinsic to equity?
0: The thing to know about the earnings growth that we've seen for a very long time now, so for over a century, in the United States at least, is that it's been considerably above the rate of inflation. So, equity tracks earnings, which is profits, and both of those have been growing at about 4, 5, 6% above inflation for a very long time, over a century. So, it's not just about prices increasing. If you look at commodities, for example, they just track inflation, whereas equity has just done far better. So, why is that? Why have they managed to grow above that rate? I think part of the reason is that companies which fail to grow at that rate will be taken out of the system. They'll go bankrupt, their capital will be taken away. So I think as a capital allocation mechanism, I think what this shows is the equity market has been very good at doing that culling process, a kind of Darwinian process whereby companies which don't grow earnings – effectively go to the wall. So I think, you know, it's not really a kind of universal law of nature that profits will always grow faster than inflation. You know, we could see a future in which that doesn't happen, for example, and you just kind of just turn over existing companies. I think another reason is there's been a demographic dividend. So Population has been increasing in the last century, much longer, obviously, but since the Industrial Revolution, which is when most of our data is based. The question is, if we had a steady global population, would we still be able to grow earnings faster than inflation?
1: I mean, that's often what I wonder about. You know, I'm long-term exposed to global equity. So, you know, you could infer from that that my belief is it will continue to grow. But there is a little devil on my shoulder which sometimes says, yeah, was the last hundred years a kind of one-off with this perfect demography? We had the baby boomers coming through and in the sort of second half of the 20th century, especially in the 80s, it gave us this perfect mix, really, where you had a huge working age population and a small cohort of older people which is exactly what you need. That's kind of the sweet spot. And we're no longer going to have that. Populations are going to be declining in much of the developed world.
0: Another way to look at it, I mean, if, if you're kind of an optimist and you kind of believe in technological process as a kind of improver of our lives and business, then you could say, well, we will get technological improvements which mean that companies can produce more at a lower cost so that increases their profits because you know if margins increase then you, you could effectively generate more with less so you know maybe it's the case that new technologies will come along which completely revolutionize our ability to grow profits. Maybe that's the way things will evolve in the future.
1: Because I also wondered if there was kind of a couple of one off changes really in the last hundred years which have fueled that equity growth. One would be an increasing share of women joining the workforce over that century, which, you know, we're not going to have that again. That's been done. And also globalization in the last 30 years where we've kind of outsourced our manufacturing capacity, which has enabled low inflation. So goods to be produced cheaply, despite the fact we're living well. That's even unwinding a bit now, I would say. So it's not a great picture going forward. I think it'll be harder unless, like you say, the technological process can offset some of those trends.
0: Well, obviously, I'm a science fiction nerd. So for me, I think exploring the solar system, but also the resources you can get from the rest of the solar system could revolutionise things. Or, you know, we could develop things like nanotechnology so that, you know, we'd have a much more extreme control over nature at the atomic level. And we could create new manufacturing processes or have a much better control of chemistry and biology, for example. And that could revolutionise health, manufacturing, all aspects of our lives. So it's really hard to see these things before they happen. So I wouldn't get too pessimistic about that happening. No, I think the real kind of barrier to progress would be something like a loss of faith in science and technology, because, you know, that's where a lot of these innovations come from. And if that suddenly goes away, you know, we could enter another dark age and that could slow progress hugely. And I think that's one of the kind of shocking things for me during this pandemic was, how much anti-science sentiment is is actually out there and if that morphs into something which is broader, then you know we could see a society which doesn't want that kind
1: of progress. The people on those fringes, or maybe not fringes now, they kind of want all the trappings and benefits of one society without, <laughs> without believing it, or at least pretending not to. But then they will fly on an airplane, or they will go to the doctor when they're really sick, or, or you know, people who are
0: anti-capitalist tweeting on their iPhone. You know, you thinking, well, <laughs> there's something not quite right there. But but yeah, I agree. I think that um, we get used to these. Kind comforts and we forget where they've come from and the processes and the political system but also the scientific system that's gone into the creation of those comforts which is I think a mistake.
1: And I suppose the other thing is that there is rising inequality in the world and whether the political situation is sustainable which is you know what sets the environment for equity to do well and shareholders to see good returns.
0: Yeah and instability Political instability from inequality, you know, wealth inequality in particular, is a pattern that we've seen many times in the past. This is one of the things that Ray Dalio talks about. It's true that, you know, political instability thrives on that kind of environment. So I think unless we do see some kind of recourse for people who are at the bottom of the wage distribution to at least see a way to getting into, you know, a more comfortable standard of living, then, yeah, I think it's going to be a real problem in the decades ahead. I think one of the things about inflation, which is kind of interesting, is that it affects wealth inequality a great deal. In periods of very high inflation, usually the people who have the most assets, inflation erodes the value of of that wealth. And in fact, if you look at the wealth distribution, It becomes less extreme after a period of high inflation. And you could argue that's why the Fed is kind of obsessed with keeping inflation low, because it actually keeps that situation, uh, it perpetuates that situation.
1: The state was founded to keep capital in the hands of a few. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I'm saying, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I'm not, I'm not sure I agree with it, but I think it's an interesting kind of idea.
1: Yeah, it's weird though, isn't it? Because you kind of don't want huge inequality, but you also don't want the overall pie to shrink. Because you could say our oh, crashes in a way are good for inequality, because it tends to bring down the wealth of the people who hold the assets. But it also has a huge impact on on the poor.
0: And zero interest rates, you know, that's immensely benefited people who have the greatest wealth. So that's another example of monetary policy exacerbating that wealth inequality.
1: I suppose another long term issue that could cause markets to stagnate would be something like climate change. If that necessarily led to lower consumption, like if we were forced to consume less, then presumably that would have an impact on corporate earnings.
0: Yeah, and if we have finite resources and a finite amount of energy which we can generate, if that was the case, then yes, you would expect that would curtail the growth in profits. However, you know we do have other sources of energy as a physicist you know i like <laughs> i'm very keen on nuclear energy as a kind of stopgap measure for renewables as a kind of always on source of energy which isn't sustainable because uranium has to be mined but it is clean at least and you can dispose of the nuclear
1: waste Bury it very far underground or we'll fire it into the sun. <laughs> so, we're going to send rockets up with all this nuclear waste on and hope for the best. Well, it's becoming much cheaper now to launch
0: into space thanks to SpaceX. So, at least that's becoming a possibility. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Oh, come on. The sun is quite big. I think <laughs> it will be fun.
1: <laughs> I mean, getting out of the atmosphere is what I'm worried about. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, I think, you know, I wouldn't, I don't think the energy problem is one that can't be overcome. It's just going to take a while to do it. But the technology is certainly there. And I think people have been surprised by how quickly things like wind power in the UK has actually grown.
1: And I suppose that one of the final things I wondered was, we're talking about global equity and how well it's done over, you know, 100 odd years But is that really because the US has done so well? Like there's so many markets, whether it's Japan or Italy or Greece or wherever, which really haven't seen those long-term returns. Or the UK. Is it just they're saying the US has done so well? And what if the US stops doing so well?
0: It's only done a lot better. I mean, over the last decade, for example, it's trounced almost every other country. And if you do go back 100 years, you know, the UK was a much bigger part of global equity markets and it's shrunk to 4% over that period of time. And it is because of the success of the US in growing profits. So I think, you know, this will become a kind of self-rewarding thing. Markets will become dominated by the countries which do manage to grow their profits. And that'll obviously help the country which has managed to do that economically. So maybe what will happen is that countries will copy the success model of the US, perhaps. But I think the danger is that you do have this kind of country inequality, which ultimately could create conflict.
1: But also as an investor, if the US starts to falter and its markets go the way of Japan, then it's kind of all over for the next 30 years in terms of expecting a good return.
0: Well, again, you know, that's a pessimistic way of looking at it. I think what will probably happen is another country will come to the fore. You know, one that we would never expect. You know, Belgium. Belgium. (laughs) So when Belgium takes over the world, you know, I think I think everything will be fine.
1: I mean, we've been pessimistic because that's the kind of what the question implies is like, why would this happen? I'm an optimist. And, you know, like I say, my portfolio, if you looked at it, is dominated by global equity. So my money and my mouth is there. I think it's going to be fine. But, you know, it could not be. You are taking risk investing in markets. That's the point.
0: And we do have these long periods when markets falter. You know, it can be a decade or more when growth is just lousy. You know, not necessarily a recession or a fall, but just not trading anywhere, just kind of going sideways and not beating inflation. So, you know, it certainly happens and you've just got to be ready for it.
1: Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Remember to subscribe to hear our new episode every Wednesday. If you want to keep abreast of the most important goings-on in markets and the economy, why not sign up for my weekly market roundup at PensionCraft.com? It's free. Many Happy Returns is a PensionCraft production co-hosted and executive produced by Ramin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.